and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. David Lynn is the co-founder of Cycle for Survival, which is a movement to beat rare cancers. And movement is the right word. They have raised over $350 million to support pioneering research and life-saving clinical trials at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And at Sloan, they have brought new and better treatment options to people around the world. Truly inspiring stuff. David's going to share how Cycle for Survival was founded and how him and his wife uh, have really passed the torch on to other people who have, able, who have 
been able to scale this thing and really make a massive impact. In addition to David's active involvement with Cycle for Survival, he's also an executive vice president and board member at Oak Point Partners, which he'll explain in a little more detail in today's conversation, uh, what they do and how they do it. And prior to starting Oak Point in 2004, he worked at both McKinsey and Company and Center Post Communications. During his years at McKinsey, David had a unique arrangement whereby he took a five-month leave of absence every year to play soccer professionally with the Chicago Stingers Professional Soccer Club. And we're going to talk about that experience as well. And what a great name the Stingers are that really speaks to something that is close to my heart. And that's a teaser for the future of this conversation. This conversation is deep. Uh, David is vulnerable. He's open. He's honest. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He's seen some things and gone through some adversity in his life. He lost his wife at the age of 40, and that is part of the impetus for starting Cycle for Survival. So he's going to talk about that in today's conversation. He's going to talk about business. He's going to talk quite a bit about leadership and what he's learned along the way playing soccer at a really high level and continuing to compete till this day. David holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. It's where he met his wife. Uh, He has a bachelor's with highest distinction from Northwestern University. And it was at Northwestern where he was elected team captain of the varsity soccer team. And he received the director's award for best academic performance by a Northwestern student athlete. So there's no question Dave is a high achiever. But I think at the crux of this conversation, he also is focused on doing good and making an impact. So that intersection of doing well and doing good hopefully shines through in today's conversation. One last thing. David is a preparer. He sent me a bunch of questions before we got started, and he is extremely curious. He even asked me, hey, is it okay if I ask you some questions when we're doing the interview? And I said, sure, and gave him some tips on how we might go about doing that. So just know that this is someone who loves to learn, loves to compete, and loves to lead. So I think you're going to love David as much as I love talking to him. So here is David Lynn. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We originally originally crossed paths because of Ethan Zahn, who is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Uh, I think you probably would say the same. I can't imagine someone interacts with Ethan and, and doesn't think like this dude's an interesting story and journey in life. Um, and he is just incredible. And But why we got connected is is also just as interesting when Ethan said, yeah, I play in this Maccabi uh, over, what are you guys, 45, uh, like over 45 team. Uh, and I want to introduce you to our captain. Uh, I was caught a little off guard. I played in like the domestic Maccabi games as a kid when I was probably 13 and I played roller hockey and I was like a fourth line person that hardly played, but they put me in during garbage minutes. That's like the highlight of my athletic career. Uh, but here you are in your forties and into your fifties. It's like, Hey, we're, we're going to compete worldwide. Um, so I'd love to start here. Uh, you know, you've got successful business background, but you are training and having conversations with me about how you can build a culture and lead this team and, and go for gold. Like what in the hell are you doing competing at your age and making the commitment to be part of this team and walk us through what that's like and why you got into it. Yeah. I mean, some of our spouses and partners and kids think we're crazy, but uh, there is for me, 
one of the most special things in life is being a part of a team. And every guy in this team, Ethan's great, but you could, the same is true of every single teammate. So it's this incredible experience. Um, and let me let me take you back a little bit, kind of tell you the story. Uh, like you, I sort of knew about it. I played in these games as a kid. Um, I played in Argentina in 1995 uh, when I must have been 22 years old, back when I was playing soccer professionally. And then I kind of forgot about it. And uh, around 2009, I got a phone call that said, do you know, there's this 35 and older team for the United States that's going to play this tournament in Israel. And I said, wow, that sounds amazing. Like, absolutely sign me up. And I turned to one of my best friends, his name is Rob Olin, and uh, our wives actually went to uh, college together. And I said, Rob, let's go play on this team. And Rob said, no, I heard about that team. I'm not going to do it. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's a guy in the team who played at Brown when I was at Brown and I wasn't on the team at Brown. I know how good he is. I know Dave used to play professionally. I'm just not going to be able to do it. And I said, Rob, you don't understand. Just because guys were good at 22 doesn't mean they're good at 35 plus. You're playing every day. You know, you're getting better. And he said, no, and, and we, we should talk more about this. But my wife at the time was going through uh, a really tough uh, health challenge. Um, she had a rare type of cancer. And one of the things she realized was that we all have these fears that hold us back. And so she was all about putting those fears to the side and being fearless. And so she started to give Rob a hard time. So kind of saying to Rob, like, why are you being so afraid? You know, what's wrong with you? And he still wouldn't go. And uh, so I went, the tournament on the field wasn't a real success for our team. And I picked up an injury. So personally it was a struggle. And, um, it had been a number of years where I was picking up these injuries. So long story short, I, I stopped playing soccer for a little bit at that time. My wife was really sick. Um, and sort of to bring the story full circle, you know, at her, at her funeral, Rob's wife told this story as a way to, she told it in a great sort of funny way about how Jen wasn't afraid to give you a little bit of tough love. And she gave Rob that tough love. And the following year, Rob decides he's going to play. He's going to go out there and join the Maccabi games. He goes, I'm still not playing soccer. He comes back to me and says, hey, Dave, the next tournament is in Chile. You need to come back and play. And I said, oh, man, Rob, I'm, I keep getting hurt. I'm, I'm playing basketball now. I like that. And he looks at me and he says, with, with sort of just complete deadpan, he says, what happened to being fearless? And I said, oh, man, you're such a jerk. OK, I'll try. And what I did was I sort of got a couple top physical therapists, designed a whole program together with them, looked again at my nutrition, changed everything about the way I was training. We came back, we played together, we won the bronze medal in Chile and to kind of really bring it full circle. We're going to Argentina in December and hoping to win the gold. OK, um, <laughs> there's a lot. But what I wanted to pull on is this idea of fearlessness. And are you someone who's wired to be more fearful or more fearless? Really more fearful. Yeah. So, um, you know, Jen really had that ability to kind of put those fears aside, but that's not the way that I'm wired. Um, and in many ways, you know, you mentioned how we got to know each other. And as part of that was reading, uh, reading your book about shift your mind. 
And I kind of realized that I would bring those fears. They were helping me when I would prepare because it caused me to work harder. I felt like somebody was gaining on me. Um, but I would bring those fears into the matches as well. And I realized from Jen, from you and others that that was holding me back. And so it's against my nature, but I now sort of intentionally, I always kind of try to recognize one of those fears holding me back. How can I put them to the side? It's interesting. I remember there was a quote from Oprah where she said, you know, I'm aspiring to do a lot of things, but the one thing that I'm really trying to live is fearlessly. And I thought about it and I'm like, but you're Oprah. (laughs) I think you've done okay. I think like you've lived a pretty meaningful life and perhaps those fears have served you in so many ways. And yet perhaps when you overdose on something, it also is what holds you back. Um, And so can you talk about Jen's fearlessness and what the attraction of that for you was um, and what that partnership looked like before she got sick? Yeah, before she got sick, she was, well, through her entire life, she had, no matter what she was going through, just a smile that would light up the room. She was the kind of person she'd walk into the room and sort of, the energy would, the positive energy would just increase. You were drawn to her. I was drawn to her. And uh, we met at the Harvard Business School. She was uh, a year ahead of me in the class ahead of me. And um, the uh, we we kind of fell in love there. It was There's a long, funny story about her having this great apartment on campus that my roommate and I wanted. And there was a loophole in the lottery that if when she was moving out, if we could get her to sign her name on the lease, we could avoid the lottery. And so that was kind of our first date, me convincing her to give us this apartment. And it kind of uh, took off from there and um, just kind of magnetic, energetic, um, just um, wakes up every day, happy and ready to attack life. And when you all get this news um, that she has cancer, like I, I would. All right, I'll put my fears out here. Like I'm afraid of death and I don't really understand people that aren't. And when I explain to people that I have a fear of death, they don't get me. They're like, what do you mean you're afraid of death? I'm like, I don't know. I don't understand how you're not afraid of death. Like public speaking, easy, like dealing with hard stuff. I'll figure it out. But nothingness or not knowing what the heck's going to happen there. That to me is terrifying. Um, with losing her at a young age of 40 and, and knowing her as this vibrant young person and uh, vivacious and energetic and magnetic, like how did it change your relationship with, with death or loss? I mean, that happens at a pretty young age for, for someone to go through that. Yeah. I mean, a couple pieces there. You, you mentioned about, um, about fearing death. And, and I feel that, and, and Jen felt that I think what her, and, and you were talking about Oprah having these fears, what I think Jen's unique perspective and what she started to view was started to view as her purpose was that we can't get rid of those fears. Like she, she would often talk to people fearless for her. wasn't just, wasn't the absence of fear. It was recognizing we all have these fears, but don't let them hold us back. So when the doctor told us she had this right rare type of cancer, of course we were afraid, but we made a very specific decision to take those fears and try to put them to the side because she said, those fears aren't going to help me beat cancer. They're not going to help me make the most of every day. 
And she would often talk about how she felt lucky to have cancer. And I said to her, what are you talking, what, how could you ever think that? Like what? And she really believed it enabled her to recognize those fears, put them aside and live her best life. Having said that, being with her when she took her last breaths, the second part of what you were talking about, that, it changes you. Yeah, it definitely changes you. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it really does give you a perspective on, on what's important in life. I don't know if it makes me fear death any, any less, but it makes me understand, I think, that it's it's a part of life. It's going to happen to all of us. So I think that's the biggest thing to, that I'm able to recognize and sort of deal with it versus having it be something that I wouldn't even think about. When someone says adversity makes you stronger, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, it um, absolutely makes us stronger. And I wouldn't, um, so shortly after Jen died, I was on a, uh, a work call and there was a negotiation that was going on and the attorney on the other side was started yelling at me, giving me a hard time. And I kind of look at the at the phone and say, does, does he really think this is going to phase me? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, so adversity makes you stronger. It gives you perspective. And I sort of know that whatever life throws at me, um, I can handle. Um, and I would say one more thing in that in that respect, the big, big learning for me going through everything was that all of us face adversity, all of us face these challenges. You know, for me, it was Jen's health. Um, for other people, it might be something in their family, a challenge at work, who knows what. But it's really important for us all to remember that we have a choice in how we react to those challenges. Because those challenges are going to keep on coming at us. That adversity is going to keep on coming but we have a choice in how we react. So if you're playing the Maccabi games, you have some relationship with being Jewish. Um, for people that aren't Jewish that are listening to this, it can be confusing for people to understand, is this a religion? Is this a culture? It's probably some combination of both. But spiritually, do you have like a spiritual framework that helps guide you, especially when dealing with hardship or, or tough times? Is there like a spiritual North star that helped you through, I'm sure some pretty dark days. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I mean, the spiritual guidance for me is, is family community. It's, it's trying to, trying to be a good person. It's, it's trying to help others that have got, are going through this situation. Um, my experience has been from a religious standpoint that people that lose a loved one, often they either get more religious or less for whatever reason, I got less religious, um, so less sort of formal spirituality, um, but still finding a ton of comfort in friends, family, and in this, uh, now it's this, uh, these teammates, this Maccabi group. And I want to go to luck because that was sort of, I was curious about faith. Like the word faith has kind of been hijacked by religion, but I don't think it need, you need to be religious to have faith. Um, and you don't need, you can be spiritual without religion and you can be religious and not spiritual. Um, but luck is an interesting word. And we were talking about it before, before we started rec 
recording because you said to me before we were recording, you said, you know, I've been unlucky in, in some ways and extremely lucky in other ways. And, and that polarity of luck and unluck, um, like when I hear you say, I wouldn't wish what I went through on anybody. And there is, it changes your perspective on how you live every day. And uh, I'll, I'll just end with this. I was just watching a clip earlier today with Kobe Bryant talking about why he changed his number to 24 and people forget with Kobe. I mean, he was coming out of some deep, deep stuff. Um, he was accused of rape. I mean, like it was a dark time. He was going to arenas and getting heckled and taunted. He was losing, he lost all his sponsorships. Um, and I think he said, and then of course, from a basketball standpoint, him and Shaq broke up and, um, and he said, you know, I knew that I needed to change my number to 24. First of all, it was my number when I was a freshman in high school. So it had some meaning there, but philosophically speaking, and if you study Kobe, you know, he was very philosophical. He loved the idea that every day I need to come in and do the work and I've got 24 and then it resets again and it resets again. Um, and so I, that story, it's just fresh on my mind, but I'm thinking about the unluckiness and how that might make you think about 24 hours a little differently. Um, and maybe lucky, also can make us think differently about the 24 hours, but can you talk about your relationship with luck and, and how you think about it? Yeah. I mean, I think my number one sort of belief about luck is that we, we make our own luck. Um, so being prepared leads to sort of more often than not things going your way. So putting in the work preparation and the like leads to good luck. Um, in my life, and there's, there's one thing I, I sort of I'm not sure that I could explain it, um, but was very lucky in love meeting Jen, had this incredible marriage and relationship, incredibly unlucky that um, she was with us for far too short a time. And then somehow incredibly lucky to find another great love in my life. And um, so Kathy Carter was uh a friend for years and years. She was at, uh, I think, the very first or second Cycle for Survival event. So all we had all kinds of friends in common. We were going to the 2006 World Cup together. And um, she was the first person after Jen died to say, okay, get out of bed. Let's go for a run. Let's go to the gym. And that friendship that we had over years uh, turned into uh, so much more. Um, and we just moved to LA within the last couple of years. She, her career is, is thriving. She was one of the people who was involved in starting Major League Soccer and now is the CEO of uh, LA's hosting the Olympics in 2028. So she's the CEO of LA 28. So very, very, I consider myself, wow, two incredible loves. Somebody said to me, how did you find these two incredible women? And I have no idea. I can't explain that for you, man. But, uh, but feel very lucky about that. What have you learned from Kathy? So much. I mean, I've learned so much from Kathy. A few things um, that sort of uh, jumped to mind. Um, she is incredible at, at keeping an even keel. Uh, as you can imagine, um, being one of the leaders of, uh, of the Olympics, there are a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different constituencies, and she is amazing at sort of not getting too high or too low. So that's something I really um, have learned from her. The, uh, the second thing is, and it, it gets out a little bit how I said, you know, we have a choice in how we react to the challenges. 
Um, she told me uh, not too long ago that she makes a choice when she gets up every day to be happy. And uh, that's not, not everybody can do that. And I, uh, I know that, um, um, that that can be super challenging for people, but for her, she has this ability to wake up and say, I'm, I'm going to smile today and, um, and try to carry a positive vibe into the day. And as you think about yourself as a leader um, in business, on your Maccabi team, I mean, I'll take it back. Like Ethan Zahn's like, hey, you got to talk to our captain. Um, I'm curious, like how have your lessons from Jen and from Kathy impacted your leadership style? We can just talk about from a soccer standpoint or from a business standpoint, or maybe even both. Like what have you learned about leadership and and helping to create culture in, in that sort of environment? Yeah, I mean- Learned so much from both of them. So, um, and it applies. It definitely applies on the uh, with the soccer team. It applies with the the business that we built. It applies with cycle for survival that we've built up. Um, and because for, for me, leadership is a, is about getting the most, helping a, a group, any kind of group, achieve their maximum potential. And so, from Kathy, I've realized that she takes the time to individually understand each person and what makes them tick uh, and how she can help them achieve their potential. And she is much more patient than I am. I would be sort of more kind of rushed to judgment or more, this is the way, this is my leadership style. And I've seen from her how she can um, really tailor to what each person needs. So that's been huge. And then from Jen, this, this energy, that how how this positive energy can be contagious. So at the very first cycle for survival, we were trying to raise ten thousand dollars, and right out of the gate, we raised over two hundred thousand, which was which we were blown away. And Jen said to everybody in the crowd, "Did you enjoy today?" And they said, "Yeah, it was great." Okay, well then, can you come next year and bring one friend with you? And if you do that, we'll double the size of it. So that energy, that kind of vision, her seeing how big this could be, that's something that I try to bring to uh, to the team. It's interesting. I remember when we first talked on the phone, I remember exactly where I was. I was in the car and I was in Chevy Chase. Like I was right near my house, but I pulled over to have a conversation with you. Because I think within like a minute of having a conversation with you, I could tell, I was like, this guy's not messing around. Like, and and you caught me at a time in my life where I was overextended and um, you know, I had the book, I got these little kids, I had too much work. Um, and, and I remember trying to be like very boundaried during that time. And, and you're tr like, Hey man, we need you like, come help us out. And I'm like, I don't think I can help you. Um, and I probably didn't communicate in a effective manner or in the manner that I would have liked to. So I remember it was like, I don't want to say contentious, but an intense conversation. And, um, I bring that up because I had probably something to do with that conversation. And I would imagine you did as well. And my quick like judgment of you is like, this guy's an intense dude. And then I go online like to, to prepare for today. And, you know, you got this like commercial with Exos where you're training for the Maccabi games and you're taking care of your nutrition and every little piece of you is like, is focused on maximizing your ability to compete in this important um but over 40 whatever the like, games right um yeah. and i bring up kobe bryant again here because i think if you once again if you study kobe 
early in his career, he it was his way or the highway. And if Smush Parker, for example, was not getting on board with Kobe, he was like, get the hell out of here and go get me a different guard to play with. And he said when he got into his 30s and started playing with Pal Gasol that he learned that he needed to try to understand each of the players and that they weren't necessarily all driven in the same maniacal way that he was. And he needed to find what each of them were driven and motivated by. Um, and I'll tell a quick little story here. I remember I, I had the opportunity to spend some time with John Calipari when he was coaching the Dominican national basketball team and why he was coaching the Dominican national basketball team. Spoiler alert, Carl Anthony Towns was a 16 year old kid who was on the Dominican national team. Um, that's a whole story for another day that basketball people, you said you love basketball. We could talk about that another time, but I was sitting in a room with Calipari and Del Harris, who was a longtime NBA coach, coached for the Lakers. And they were talking about how can we motivate one of the players on that team who was a professional basketball player, but they couldn't seem to get him motivated. And they were spending all their time trying to figure that out. And they were some, for some strange reason, asking me my thoughts on it. And I give that background because I think sometimes we assume that everybody at a certain level, professional sports, for example, is motivated the same way. And yet, they're not. And Kobe had to learn, I need to figure out how to get the most of these guys and understand that it's not just my way or the highway. I would imagine your journey in business, your journey with Cycle for Survival, and your journey with the Maccabi uh, soccer team, you've had to figure out how to inspire people, how to help keep them motivated while understanding that they may not have like, especially the soccer team, like they are not going to go to Exos. They're not going to train like you are. They're not going to be as all in on it um, in the same way you are. So how have you learned to dial up the intensity when it's needed, but also how to manage it when managing people? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, two things. One is that I'll never expect from any teammate or any colleague or anything more than what I'm willing to put in. So that's kind of the first piece. I know that I'm I'm going to do the work I'm going to put in the preparation. But then the second piece is what you were talking about, to recognize that not everybody is going to respond in the same way. And I'm okay with that. Um, what I've realized, and it's taken some time, you're right. Uh, what I've realized is that what I can still do as the captain uh, or as the co-founder of Cycle for Survival, I can still inspire them to be better than what they are right now. So without expecting them to uh, uh, to come to Exos because it doesn't make sense for their work schedule, I can still motivate them in different ways to talk to them. Okay, what would you like to improve on? Well, I'm, I'm hoping to improve on X, Y, and Z. Okay, how do how can I help on that? And that that's what I love doing. Um, I actually just did a uh, exec ed uh, course uh, over at Harvard, and one of the things that was sort of a big eye opener. They had us think about you know, who are you that you, you can't help yourself? You, it was like a self-awareness kind of thing. You can't, no matter what you do, that's still who you are, even if you don't like it. And sort of what I kept coming to is no matter what I do, I, I, I'm, I'm the point guard and the captain. Like, even if I, I, that's what I like to do. I like to sort of dish the ball and have somebody improve and be, you know, get their potential or I'm the captain that likes to be kind of leading and helping guys improve. Um, even if sometimes I don't want to be, it ends up being that way. It's got me thinking when, when Jen passed, were you okay with others helping you? Um, 
I was, but there were definitely some things I needed to just kind of work through on my own. I needed some alone space and and alone time to uh, to work through that. And going through that and then seeing other people staying involved in Cycle for Survival, what I've realized is that everybody kind of grieves differently. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, friends and family were there for me in a big way. So that, that was, I was able to, that was, that was meaningful and helpful, but, but at times also, I just, I just needed some time to process and kind of, as we're talking about it, as we're thinking, I'm, I'm sort of realizing that's one of the big reasons why cycle for survival has been so successful because when somebody, a friend or a family member has a cancer diagnosis, um, and hopefully they get better. And but in the in the situation like mine where Jen didn't, it's kind of this helpless feeling. You don't know what to do. And cycle for survival provides this way for people to fight back to to do something. And so for me, it became that you know I stayed involved. I didn't know what would happen, but I stayed involved as a way to fight back. When I ask that question, it's a little loaded and selfish on my end because I'm a point guard. I've always wanted to be a leader, captain, like. I was always comfortable in those positions where I'm not always as comfortable. Like even in my Wednesday night basketball game, there are times where they're like, Brian, you just shoot. Like we want you to shoot the ball and they laugh and I'm on this email chain and they're like, Oh yeah. Like Brian, they call, they call me by my last name. Like, oh, Levinson. Like he he's in range when he crosses half court, or at least he thinks he is like, I'll shoot it from anywhere. And I am not Stephen Curry. And I didn't grow up with Stephen Curry. But I feel more comfortable shooting an open shot from there than I do like a layup. Um, and because I was always really small. Um, but what I really feel most comfortable is passing the ball. Like I love passing the ball. Yeah. And and but there are times where um they're actually asking me, no, no, you go off the ball and we want you to shoot because we need scoring and we don't have a lot of scoring on our team. And I feel less comfortable with others dishing to me. And I feel less comfortable a lot of times with not playing a leadership role. And even my friends, when we've had tragedy in our group, like they'll say to me, like, dude, you're incredible in those situations. Like you just rise to the occasion and take care of everybody. And I think that's true. I'm not sure I'm great when the opposite, when it's like, hey, something's going on with me. I need them to be there for me. Uh, like how am I at receiving, right? I'm good at giving but I'm not always great at receiving. So it might've been something that I was reading into you. Um, but I was curious how you are as a receiver. Yeah. And I probably in my first part of my answer was a little bit in denial. I think what you've uh, hit on is as I reflect on it a little more, not very good as a receiver, I'll say, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely deflect and say, I'll figure it out. Yeah. So not, uh, not so good at that. I guess it's that uh, it sounds like that's something maybe you've gotten a little better at or um mm, I, I work on it. Uh and then by the way, I think what you said is really important. I think everyone grieves differently and there is no right or wrong. And I think sometimes we try to force it. And even I think when it comes to therapy, like everyone in 2020, it's like, oh, go see a therapist, go see some. It's like it depends. Like we all need to figure out what works for us and different things work for different people. And um, I think the nuance of psychology often gets lost. And um, so, yeah, for me, though, like, I think I was resistant to taking feedback uh, at a young age. And 
that story stays with me and I can feel myself. I'm a fighter. So I can feel myself rejecting and I'm like, I'll just do it myself. Like I'll, I'll take care of it. Uh, I'm very good at having my wife help me with stuff. Like she's the handy person in our relationship. Like, you know, we just had to build a basketball hoop for our kids. Like she's going to lead on that. I will play second fiddle. And there's other things like my brothers are really good on finance. And, um, you know, there are other elements where I know if I'm not competent, like it's very easy for me. But I think when it comes to human beings and relationships, um, I sometimes don't receive. And, And the other thing that I think I sometimes do, I've been thinking a lot about this is, I pour into people and just because I pour into them, I shouldn't expect that they have to pour in at the same level as me. And that's really what you were talking about before. It's like, you're going to set the bar. I love what you said though. It's like, I need to ask them, Hey, what do you want to get better at? And so that it's not you and it's not you're telling them this is what they need to do. It's asking them and it's asking them, Hey, where do you want to improve? And then you can hold them accountable to them being at their best. I think that is so, so critical for any leadership position, but it has to start with curiosity and empathy and an understanding. And a lot of times we skip over that and just say, oh yeah, well, why wouldn't they do what I do? And um, that's where I think we all get in trouble. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. And and I came to that the hard way because uh, as a younger soccer player and I saw from some of the veterans and then I would do this if I was one of the better players in the team, I would ride the other guys hard if they weren't playing well or if they weren't working hard. And it took me a while to realize, wait a second, that player that I'm giving a hard time, he's actually playing worse now. <laughs> I didn't inspire him to play better. I need to take a step back. Actually, that player needs confidence. And if I say that player, oh, you look great out there, you're playing great, then they'll actually start to play better. Sort of the opposite of what I was doing. Um, so yeah, by screwing it up, how do we get better by screwing it up? And I screwed it up many, many times. And I, and I still do out there, even at, as you said, at 45 plus soccer, but that's why it's fun. Cause it's, uh, we're learning and we're getting better. There are certain sports where the word captain matters. Hockey comes to mind and soccer comes to mind. You literally put a C on the Jersey or you wear a C armband. I'll just use those two sports as an example. Whereas maybe, you know, in a sport like basketball, a little less, football they wear the c but there's usually multiple c's and it's not the same but in soccer like that armband actually really matters you're the one that's going to talk to the ref like there's there's a lot of prestige that comes with that and a lot of responsibility what does that word mean to you yeah it um it's an honor um for me it means it means leader um and I, I mean, I, I love the book. I, you probably know the name of the, the, uh, there was a book that studied all of the captain, all of the successful teams out there. And what was the differentiator? Well, they had an extraordinary captain. So for me, it, it's a huge honor. It's, I look up to captains of other teams. It's one I take very seriously. And it's one that I try to um, do a great job with. And number one, and number two, ask the guys like, Hey, how is, are there other things I could be doing better? as the captain. So it's a responsibility, um, which actually is, is tough for me because we, you know, we talked about how I, how in preparation, I have that same mindset of like sort of carrying too much weight. Sometimes I find myself, I carry that weight of that armband onto the field. Like even if, you know, I got to perform, I got to put extra pressure on myself. And so one of the things I really want to get better at both soccer, basketball life is okay. Take the honor but don't take extra responsibility with that honor, bring more joy to it when I'm playing. There's a couple of things that you hit on that 
I talk about with clients a lot. Number one are the gotas. So in baseball, I got to get a hit. I got to get a hit. I just went, I was telling you before we were recording, um, I went on a golf trip with my family. It's like, I got to get it on the green. Like you start gotting yourself, you grip harder and gripping harder often makes our ability to perform worse. And so the gotas, uh, there's an old phrase. It's like change the gotas to get tos. I get to be in the batter's box. I get to take a swing at the golf club. I get to compete uh, in Israel. Like the get tos versus the gotas changes it from, you know, stress to perhaps gratitude. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other is a, the idea of a chip on the shoulder. And um, like, I get the sense that you, you lead with a chip, like, yeah, like I, I got a chip on my shoulder. I'm going to play with an edge. And as you prepare for Argentina, it's like, Hey, we've got a chip on our shoulder. Let's go after it. And I recently asked, it was actually Tobin Anderson, who, um, is the head coach at Iona, the basketball team. And he was the head coach of Fairleigh Dickinson last year. And they won as a 16 seed in college basketball. And we were talking about how everybody talks about they're an underdog, like the Kansas city chiefs this year, like nobody believed in us. We're like, yeah, we did. You had the best player in the league. Um, or, you know, it's just funny how like professional sports, he's like, no, everyone counted us out. No, we didn't, but whatever makes you happy. Like this chip on the shoulder. And I think what I used to tell, there was a baseball player I worked with and he had a chip on his shoulder. And I would say to him, I was like, the chip on your shoulder is good. You just don't need a lead with it. Like when you're in the batter's box, your lead shoulder does not need to be the chip. Put it on the back shoulder. Let it be back there and let it hang out there. But if you lead with the chip, like you're going to grip it too hard and you're not going to be able to rip it the way that, that you want to. So when I was hearing you talk, I was thinking of just like, we still want the intensity or the chip, but we also need to have it. Um, we need to have it rather than it having us. And a lot of times for, and I, I will own this. I was a small undersized kid. Like I have a chip and it's there and anyone that's been around me knows that, Hey, he's got a chip. Um, and that served me, right? Like people didn't bully me when I was younger and they wouldn't really mess with me. Cause they're like, yeah, the little guy, well, he's, he's, he's tough. Um, but to lead with it in a leadership role, it can, it can be really harmful. When is your chip or that intensity? Like, have you seen that like get turned up in a, in a negative way. Um, let's just talk about soccer. Like as you're leading this team, when has the chip sort of maybe gotten in the way of competing the way that you'd want to compete? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great point. Cause I, uh, I feel it. I don't, um, and I don't know if I felt like I should have achieved more in soccer or if I, yeah, I, yeah, I think I had a decent career, but didn't achieve. So I have a little bit of that chip. But Wait, hold on. Stay there for me, David. Wait, do you believe that you fulfilled your potential when it comes to professional soccer? Because I think you played a couple of years for the Chicago Stingers. By the way, I played for a Stingers when I was growing up and my kids team, I said to them, you guys are now the Stingers. And uh, it's such a great name. Uh, but like, yeah, do you feel like you maxed out um, your professional soccer career? I think I did. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, wasn't, wasn't heavily recruited and going to Northwestern, loved it. Great fit for me. Had a good college career, had this opportunity to, um, uh, to play what I thought was going to be one season of uh, at the time it was before major league soccer started. So it was kind of comparable to minor league baseball and had accepted a job that was going to start in September, uh, working at McKinsey doing uh, consulting. 
And so this new team started in Chicago. They were taking, taking, trying to take the name recognition from the old Chicago Sting from years ago. And it was March through August. So I thought this will be perfect. I'll play this one last season, kind of get it out of my system and then go off to work. And we were losing two to nothing. I think I was, I was on the bench. I was a rookie. I wasn't playing much. I wasn't that great. Uh, the other guys were definitely better. And right place, right time. We talked about being lucky. I went in the game, but we're down 2-0. We come back, we win 3-2. And then I think the coach said, the guys who finished the last game when we won 3-2, you're starting the next game. I'm like, wow, this is great. We win the next game. <laughs> and then we win the next game. We went on like a six or seven game win streak. And the general manager says, we want to sign you a contract for next year. Um, that wasn't, wasn't very lucrative, but it was still kind of a pretty good affirmation. It was great. Uh, I was proud of it. And, but then I realized, oh, wait, I'm supposed to go to work. And so ended up you know, working this out uh, where I would, uh, the guys on our soccer team would go play for a different indoor professional team in the winter. And so instead of playing for uh, a professional team during the winter, during indoors, I went to work and did it back and forth for three years. And by the third year, it was clear I wasn't going to be a big soccer star. The guys who were destined for Major League Soccer and beyond were, were, had, had gone. And I sort of said, OK, time to go back and uh, get my MBA at business school. So, yeah, I think I, if I'm being real with myself, I kind of maxed out. I'm, on the one hand, I do have a little bit. I was a little bit of a jack of all. What's the expression? Jack of all trades, master of none. So it's kind of a utility guy filling a bunch of maybe if I had focused a little more in one role, I could have. But nah, I don't I don't think that's it. I think, I think like you, maybe the, the little guy playing basketball still is in me. <laughs> well, it's interesting you talk about that range because um, I think you said before we were recording, you spent about 20% of your time on, on Oak Point in the, in the business. Um, cycle for survival is another piece. You've got soccer. Um, I'm sure there are other pieces that you spend your time on um, wearing multiple hats and rather than focusing on, on just one singular thing. Um, talk about that experience and why, and maybe it's a good time to talk about cycle for survival and why even take that on. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a nonprofit. It's a lot of work. It's um, you know, I, I was talking to someone today about this, like, I had an idea and it would have been starting a nonprofit. I was like, eh, I don't think I want to run a nonprofit. I think I'll support other nonprofits. And I think there are nonprofits that are great. And then there are some where you say, Hey, maybe this would have been better off supporting someone who's already doing it. So talk about your ability to do well in your business, but also do good and have this other piece and then also follow passion and be part of a soccer team and all these different hats and, and why you decided to go that, that path. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, that's one of the things about, I love about life, being involved in a bunch of different things. That's one of the things that keeps it exciting, keeps it interesting, keeps us learning. But to focus on the cycle for survival piece a little bit that you asked about, um, we almost felt like we had to start it because there was such a clear need. So when Jen was was diagnosed with this relatively rare type of cancer, we were just shocked at how few treatment options there were. And so we started to do our research and we realized that these less common, these rare cancers just don't get enough funding and therefore they don't have good enough treatment options. And oftentimes a rare disease is defined as one that affects 200,000 or less people in the United States. If we apply that to the cancer world and add up all the rare cancers, they make up 50% of all cancer cases. 
And so Jen and I kind of looked at each other and said, we need to get more money into research for these rare cancers because it's it's tough enough getting a diagnosis of cancer, but getting diagnosis of cancer and there not being good treatment options or a good treatment plan, it's just a nightmare. And so we 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 felt like we we felt compelled to do it. Um, having said that, after doing it a couple of years, running everything ourselves, even as we were working full-time jobs and dealing with their health was a full-time job. We started to think about how do we make this sustainable? What do we want to do with our lives? And how do we make this um, so that it just doesn't grow and then sort of die out? And in studying other nonprofits, we realized that the clear answer to making it sustainable was to make it bigger than us. So we went to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. It's one of the leading cancer institutions in the world. And we said, imagine how big this could be if you took it over, put a full-time team on it. And thankfully they said, yes. Then we went to Equinox. Um, have, they have these incredible fitness clubs around the country. And we said, imagine if you were the founding partner, how great this could be. And again, thankfully they said yes. And with those pieces in place, we now had a team that could run the day-to-day -day of it. But Jen and I could sort of, so that it didn't feel like a job to us. It felt like something that we were doing because we wanted to do it. Um, so to me, that's the key. Uh, now I've been fortunate enough in my life to be able to, I get to do things that I want to do, not because I have to do. And I know that's not everybody's, you know, we go back to being lucky. I feel very lucky that I'm in that position. So why do I continue to stay involved in cycle for survival? Because I want to, because Jen always said, even if it was too late for her, she wanted to do everything she could to help other cancer patients. I, I want to continue that. You know, why do I do the Maccabi stuff? Because I love it. I get just such great joy out of every quarter we get together with the guys and and uh, just love sort of that. And then also having something to shoot for. So I do this basketball camp. Uh, Coach K does a basketball camp for guys 35 and older. Well, I know it's on the calendar for end of May. So I've got to train. i got to be ready. It gives me – so I love to, do, to have things that I want to do, kind of big things that are out there on my uh, uh, in the year ahead. Um, and then our Oak Point business is something I started with my brother and with one of my college soccer teammates. I want to stay involved and I want to help them however I can. So to me, I think as we're talking it through that, that's maybe that's something that's really important. Like it doesn't, you know, I'm not sure I agree with people who say, find something you're passionate about. And you'll never work a day, but do stuff that you want to do that. You know, you know, spend your time on stuff that you want to do. There's a theme of partnerships that's coming out there, your brother and your friend from school, even I, I would imagine you and Jen both going to Harvard Business School. You actually spoke a similar language when it came to all right, what's the what does success look like uh, for Cycle for Survival? And we're going to partner with these two institutions that can really take this thing and run with it. You're partnering with a soccer team every single time you get together. You need partnerships. What have you found is key to successful partnerships? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. Partners have been, uh, they've been everything. And, um, and sort of let me get into that, but quick, uh, quick side point um, around, you had mentioned you were thinking about starting a nonprofit. People ask me a lot of times about starting a successful nonprofit. And one of the biggest things is to understand, does this already exist? Is there somebody existing that you can partner with? Or is there something unique and new that you're going to bring in? Um, so that's kind of how it relates on the nonprofit side, but just sort of broader point, um, partnership. I mean, it's, for me, it's kind of pretty simple. There's one plus one equal, uh, equal three or more. Um, and 
those are the ones that work that uh, maybe somebody is sacrificing a little bit, one of the partners, um, but together you're building something that's uh, that's bigger than what you guys could do on your own. And talk about Oak Point, because when I hear you sort of talking in those terms, I hear business as well here and investing and, you know, does it already exist? It's the first question people ask is like, like, I've got this great restaurant idea. Oh, they're already doing that. I just came up with it. Oh, we were, uh, we were on this golf trip and I was like, they should have like a VIP private golf thing. And they're like, my brother's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that exists. And then sure enough, look it up. It exists. Um, but as I'm, as I'm hearing you, I hear the business side come out. And um, so what has Oak Point taught you? Explain what Oak Point does um, and how that's impacted you. And then um, once again, you mentioned before, it's like, yeah, hey, I'm spending about 20% of my time on it. Uh, we just brought in new investors and um, are doing things maybe a little differently, but give us some background on Oak Point and what you've learned throughout the years working with your brother and what that's been like, all that good stuff. Yeah. So um, Oak Point, it's, it's sort of uh, has been traditionally an under the radar business. Uh, we are um, the biggest institutional purchaser of what we call unknown assets. So by nature, it's under the radar. So these are uh, a company you might have all kinds of old bank accounts for maybe a company they acquired years ago that they didn't even know they had. Or there might be these old utility deposits or all these kind of things that just aren't on their balance sheet. Nobody knows about them. And we built up over the last 15 plus years the expertise to, to find that stuff. And it ends up being fine, found money for these companies. Um, so that's kind of the, the niche that we're in, unknown assets. And uh, we started from completely from scratch to your point of, you know, did it exist before? And no, nobody was doing it. Um, so we were the pioneers and the leaders. And um, partnership has been absolutely critical to that with, with my brother and uh, we were, we, he's in Chicago, so we're not typically in the same city. So that helps. We don't drive each other crazy, but uh, what also helps is he's incredibly smart, a great leader. And so we rarely sort of question each other's judgment or decisions. We do in a constructive way when necessary, but have a great collaboration uh, and with, uh, with Jake Miller as well, my teammate from Northwestern. And uh, and and the rest of the team is phenomenal. I, uh, I should uh, be remiss not to mention them as well. So it's sort of grown over time from nothing to uh, to a uh, a large successful business now. And, and um, have uh, in terms of investment, you mentioned uh, Josh Harris, who's been in the news recently, uh, um, is an investor in the business, and that's helped take the business to the next level. And it's been uh, just a real rewarding, uh, I guess. For me, you know, I mentioned being on a team is one of the most special things. That's that's the way I feel about Oak Point as well, the team there. And then the second thing, I think one of the most special things in life is creating something from nothing and doing that with Oak Point, doing that with uh, with Cycle for Survival. To me, that, um, you know, when I step back and think, gives me a lot of pride. There's a theme in all of those as you're talking, which is this relationship with the unknown. And if I'm thinking about our conversation today, it's come up in a variety of ways. Like I always say, one of the beauties of sports is we don't know who's going to win. We don't. And we can say whatever we want. Look at the U.S. women's soccer team. Like you can say whatever you want. We don't know. And nothing is guaranteed. It doesn't matter who's on your roster. Like it is an unknown quantity. And then I look at the business that you've been in and you are finding things that are not, they don't, they didn't know that they have value. And now we're adding money. There's an unknown there. Cancer. Um, 
is an unknown and everyone has been touched by cancer in, in some way. And no one was like signing up for it and saying, you know, I want this. It's like things pop up in life and they're unknowns and cycle for survival. You said we thought we'd raise 10,000 and then it was 200,000. It was an unknown yeah. power. Like that, 350 million. Like think about <laughs> that, like from 10,000 expectation to 350 million that there's no way anyone's sitting there in their Harvard business school class saying, we're going to start this thing and it's going to raise $350 million. Right? Like so much of life is our relationship with the unknown death, which we talked about. We've run, <laughs> we've, we've walked at sort of every crevice of the corner in of the world in this conversation, but it's an unknown. And, and so to me, it's one of the things that I've worked hard on. You were asking earlier. It's like, I constantly try to lean into the unknown. Cause I think the unknown is where a lot of the beautiful stuff in life, it's where it happens. It's where it lives. And when people ask me like, what do you love about sports? I think it's because of the unknown. Like we don't know what's going to happen. And if we think about life, like what would life be like if we knew everything that was going to transpire? Um, it would kind of suck. Yeah. Be awful. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Everything in life, the unknown. I, I'm with you. I'm with Go you. Back that's, to, where, that's where the excitement is. The adventure. That's uh, that's where it all is. Yeah. Go back to coach K fantasy camp. Cause I'm not going to let you skip over that. It is something that I'm aware of. Um, and I have been aware of, and I've spoken to other people about it. And it's something that's on my radar as I turn 40 next year. Um, I And I love the idea that you use forcing functions, right? It's like, so I know it's going to be, I think you said in May. So I know I need to, I better be in good shape because I'm going to probably see a lot of these guys every year that are going to talk trash. And I think the way it works yes, is they better be in good shape. Now that I know you got some hoop skills, you're coming. I mean, it's, uh, we're recording here. You might have to cut this part, but I think you should come with me. My Wednesday, here comes the fearlessness here. See what he does, guys. Uh, <laughs> My Wednesday night games, I think they would confirm. I'm I would be pretty low on the list of people that you'd want to bring with you. Um, but but I'm curious for you, like, is it the forcing function that's bringing you back to that? Is it the forcing function, the Maccabi games, that's saying I need to train? I've got this. Like, what is the the driving force to continue to compete in those types of arenas that is so intoxicating for you? Yeah, let me give you, I'll tell you a little bit of background on Coach K and then, and then answer the question specifically. So Jen, my wife had gone to Duke. So she was a huge Duke basketball fan. And uh, I was a little bit of a, hater, of a hater, I have to admit. <laughs> and so 2011, we're at the Final Four. Uh, her birthday was in March. So she would always say, I don't want jewelry. I just want to go to a basketball game. Perfect. <laughs> so we go. It was the year they played Butler. That's about all that. We, we now, our wives, nothing in common because all my wife says, anytime I'm going to spend anything uh, or I'm like, do you want this? She's like, nah, just give me more, put more money into the jewelry. So we're, that Jen and her did not have that in common. Anyway, keep telling your story. Go on. I love it. Yeah. So um, uh, she was struggling with her health. So we had to go back at the time. So we had to go back to New York. The doctor said, you need to have surgery right away. And she went to surgery. Uh, it was that famous game where Duke beat Butler. Butler almost won at the last second. We're home about five days later recovering and the phone starts ringing with a caller ID from Durham, North Carolina. And of course I'm thinking, ah, these jerks, they just win the national championship. They're calling all their alums for donations and it keeps ringing and ringing. And we, and, and finally I said, Jen, just answer it. Tell them we'll give later. We just got home from the hospital. And as you could probably guess, it was, it was coach gay. 
uh, you know, a handful of days after they win the national championship, calling to tell her that, you know, that he'd heard about her story and talked to her and could you know, talk about a, a leader sort of lifting the spirits of, of people. That was that was huge at a really challenging time for her. And uh, she always wanted me to go to uh, to do this camp, to do uh, the K Academy camp. And I never could during her chemo and other treatments. But the year after she died, I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to try this. And you get down there and you start playing in Cameron. And there's Grant Hill. He's got a clipboard and Leitner and Shire and all these guys. And you're like, what's going on? Well, they're the coaches. Coach K has made this incredible alumni weekend and they draft us onto teams. And then you play basketball for four or five days and it's like being a kid again. So, and that was initially what brought me back there. This past year was my 10th straight year going. And so it's two things that bring me back. One, it's the forcing mechanism you asked about. It's I like to have it on the calendar so that I know I got to keep going. I got to keep training. But two, it's, it's the camaraderie. It's being a kid. It's chasing a ball. It's feeling young again. And, uh, and all the friends that you make there. And I think all the money is, is they raise a ton of money. Uh, this is coach K's big charity event and there is a ton of money. So there's another theme that has woven its way through our conversation today, which is the idea of doing good and doing well, um, or having fun while still doing good, which is cycle for survival. Uh, I haven't been, um, but when I talk to people, it's this high energy, enthusiastic, joyful experience while still doing good. And uh, that seems to be a thread and a common theme for both you and Jen um, throughout your lives. Absolutely. And you're getting lots of stuff put on your calendar now. So now for February, you got to come out. Trust Cycle for Survival is easy. It's a team relay. You could ride for a little bit. Wife rides for a little bit. Turn over to a friend. So hopefully you join us for that. Um, but yeah, it is a, uh, I think when you're, when you bring that positive energy that, you, I mean, no matter what Jen was going through, she was still on that spinning bike at 7 a.m. at Equinox, and she had that big smile on her face. So hopefully I can take a little bit of that positive energy and kind of keep it going out there and and uh, and try to do a little bit of good. Um, and, and actually, that's what, you know, as we're talking, as I'm thinking, that's one thing I would sort of tell anybody who's listening, whether it's whether driver or something else, I would encourage everybody to get involved in something that's bigger than yourself because there's so much joy that you get from actually from helping other people. It's um, not only helping other people, but it's going to make yourself feel so much better as well. I think that's a beautiful place for us to close. Uh, David, if people want to follow you, I know you're on Instagram. Um, where else can they find you? And then uh, I don't know if you want to plug Oak Point or Cycle for Survival or the Maccabi Games. Um, what else do you want to sort of uh, guide people to uh, that you're passionate about? Yeah, I mean, uh, any of the social platforms, Fearless DL, uh, Fearless and then my initials, DL. Um, and I would say uh, anybody that's been touched by cancer, please reach out. I'm happy to help however I can. Uh, if Cycle for Survival is something that appeals to you, cycleforsurvival.org and on all um, social media as well. So those are the things I'm doing. But uh, like you, Brian, love uh, connecting and talking to interesting people and and um, figuring out how we can uh, you know, do our tiny part to make things a little better. Well, your journey and your story is inspiring. Uh, I mean it. That's the word I would use to describe it. 
and I'm sitting here looking at you. I know you're in great shape and you take care of yourself. And I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta get my ass in gear here a little more. I have a trainer that comes twice a week and kicks my ass, but like, I st- I'd probably need to get on a, a bike a little bit more uh, as I'm about to go away for uh, some time at the beach. It's not going to be pretty, but um, yeah, coach K camp is something that uh, maybe, maybe down the road now, now I'm putting it out in the universe and everyone can listen to this, but and if you want to tweet at me, you can do it at Brian Levins. And I think it's called tweeting. I don't know. It's called X or Twitter or something or whatever the heck it is. Uh, I'm on that platform. Uh, and then LinkedIn, uh, at Brian Levinson. And you can list all these conversations. Uh, you know, David mentioned that captain book. That's the captain class by Sam Walker. He's been on the podcast. Um, he was introduced to me by Greg Berhalter, who's been on the podcast. And when David, David is a preparer, he peppered me with questions. He's like, Hey, what should I listen to? You've got all these episodes. Give me a few. And I'm like, all right, listen to Greg. You're into soccer. I think you'll like learning from Greg. Um, uh, so you can listen to Greg's podcast or, or any of these in the past. Ethan was one of our early adopters. I said to David, here's Ethan's, but like, it's from back in the day. And I don't know how great our audio quality is, but Ethan Zahn has also been on the podcast. You can listen to any of them at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, David, my man, it was great to reconnect with you. Uh, I, you know, in, in a previous world, I wish I could have really been alongside you guys, especially as you go to Argentina. Uh, I think I'm actually going to Argentina next year too. So I might hit you up for some tips uh, when I go. Um, but appreciate all that you continue to do. Um, and thank you so much for, for continuing to serve a bunch of different people in a variety of ways. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic. And thanks for all that you do to help everybody. You got it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. In studying other nonprofits, we realized that the clear answer to making it sustainable was to make it bigger than us. So we went to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. It's one of the leading cancer institutions in the world. And we said, imagine how big this could be if you took it over, put a full-time team on it. And thankfully they said yes. Then we went to Equinox. Um, They have these incredible fitness clubs around the country. We said, imagine if you were the founding partner, how great this could be. And again, thankfully they said yes. And with those pieces in place, we now had a team that could run the day-to-day of it but Jen and I could sort of, so that it didn't feel like a job to us. It felt like something that we were doing because we wanted to do it. Um, so to me, that's the key. Uh, now I've been fortunate enough in my life to be able to, I get to do things that I want to do, not because I have to do. And I know that's not everybody's, you know, we go back to being lucky. I feel very lucky that I'm in that position. So why do I continue to stay involved in Cycle for Survival? Because I want to, because Jen always said, even if it was too late for her, she wanted to do everything she could to help other cancer patients. I want to continue that.